0: Episode 224 Biblical Words for God and for His Son Part 1 God and the Word God in the Bible This episode of the Trinity's Podcast is a talk I gave on March 11th at Higher Ground Church, which is in White House, Tennessee. In this first talk, I emphasize the importance of understanding the ambiguity of terms and how this relates to the word God in the Bible. I discuss the odd Hebrew word Elohim and how it can mean God or gods, and whether or not this has any implications for Christian theology. I distinguish monotheism, the claim that there's only one God, from what I call monotheosism, the claim that there is only one who can properly be described or addressed using the word God. I argue that according to the Bible, these differ in their truth values. I then interact with a book called Jesus as God, the New Testament use of theos in reference to Jesus. This is by the evangelical scholar, Dr. Murray J. Harris. And I go through the seven passages in the New Testament in which he believes Jesus is referred to using the word theos, God. Is he right? And if he is, what are the implications for Christian theology and Christology? This is one of those episodes where I do recommend the YouTube version. There are 35 slides that I go through in this presentation, and sometimes my points might be a little bit clearer with the slides. Also, some of them have stupid and entertaining pictures, so you wouldn't want to miss that. A link to that YouTube version is on the blog post for Trinity's podcast episode 224 at trinities.org. Without further ado then, over to me. Good morning what I'm going to talk about is called Biblical Words for God and His Son. And there's really two subjects that I'm going to talk about this morning. One is God in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And the other one is the Word God in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. So God is one subject and the Word God is another subject. And this particular talk, I'm just going to stick with 100% undeniable facts. And so it doesn't matter what your theological commitment is. If you're Roman Catholic, if you're Baptist, if you're a Biblical Unitarian, even if you're a Mormon, if you take the New Testament and the whole Bible seriously, there isn't anything that should be controversial here. And so this is just kind of foundational material for understanding the Bible. Words can be ambiguous, and because words can be ambiguous, sentences can be ambiguous and to be ambiguous is just to have more than one interpretation you know sometimes you're just not sure what's being said and what's not being said when there's an ambiguity so we all know that nouns can be ambiguous if I say I went for a walk by the bank well great but what do I mean did I go for a walk down by the riverbank or did I go for a walk down by the bank in the city well just by that statement itself you don't know do you and how do you decide context it all comes down to context someone says this concerts going to be really hot what do they mean is is it going to be hot because it's outdoors in Tennessee in July or is it hot because this guy can really really play the guitar again you don't know until there's some more context right maybe you're discussing guitar playing and then you say this or maybe you're talking about the weather and how hot it is and you say this nouns can be ambiguous adjectives can be ambiguous even titles can be ambiguous so if you say the boss is singing born to run which do you mean do you mean Bruce Springsteen or do you mean the boss of the local auto repair shop again it just depends on the context right you might well mean either one you might mean somebody else at the karaoke party who, who you happen to like to call the boss right? the boss is an ambiguous title it can refer to many many different people Here's what's even more disturbing, a proper name can be ambiguous. So, I don't know if you heard, but uh, recently there was a phone conversation between Bill Cosby and Bill Clinton, and it was tapped by the NSA. You know, they're tapping everything now. And uh, there's a transcript of this that I got on the internet, and because I believe everything I read on the internet, I think this is pretty genuine. So I've got it here with me. It goes, the conversation goes like this. Bill, I've been meaning to ask you something for a long time. Well, go ahead, Bill, I'm an open book. Bill, how on earth have you managed to stay married for so long? I mean, what's your secret? Well, Bill, I'll tell you. Whenever I do something that enrages my wife, which is pretty often, I just tell her I'm really sorry and I buy her a big box of chocolates. Seriously, that works? Yes, Bill, it's true. It has worked for me all these years. All right, what just happens <laughs> who, who is was giving marital advice to whom yeah. right you don't know and who is this lady who is too easily persuaded by chocolates is it is it Hillary Clinton or is it Camille Cosby we don't know right and the reason we don't know is because the proper name bill is ambiguous we don't know who it refers to now how could we get rid of that ambiguity two words context yeah. You know, you could see the video, or you could hear more of the conversation. You could get rid of the ambiguity. You could figure out who is giving advice to who. We think of proper names as only referring to one individual, but actually they're ambiguous. They can be used for many different individuals. Believe it or not, in my lifetime, I have found out about two other Dale Tuggies. True story. I'm not the only Dale Tuggy around, contrary to what you might assume. I mean, come on, that's such a strange name. You'd think who would use that again, but... It has happened, I have to tell you. Okay, so what does this have to do with the Bible? I thought this was going to be about the Bible. I'm getting to that. But again, context is the way you get rid of ambiguity. Some context is place and time. When was it said? Where was it said? And then if you're dealing with a written source, you know, look at the rest of the sentence. Look at the rest of the paragraph. Look at the rest of the chapter. Look at the whole book, like the book of John or something like that. Because sentences can have wildly different meanings. If someone says, the man is coming to get you, this could be like one hippie warning another hippie that the police are coming. You know, you better flush your drugs and run. Or it could be, you know, your dad's about to pick you up from kindergarten. It could mean a whole bunch of different things. The man part and the coming to get you part were just utterly dependent on context to sort through what those different possible meanings are and, and to pick one. So, here's an ambiguous term in the Old Testament, God. The main word for God in the Hebrew Scriptures, there are a number of different titles and names and terms given to God, which we won't get into all those complexities, but I just want to talk a little bit about the Hebrew term Elohim. And this is an interesting and kind of a strange word because it's plural in structure, so it always has a plural form, but it can have a plural or singular meaning depending on the context so if you see a sentence in biblical hebrew like all the people worshipped elohim that can be translated all the people worshipped god or it can be translated all the people worshipped the gods it can have those two different meanings and it just depends on the context which one is correct now happily you don't just have to go by general context you know what century did this occur in or look at the whole rest of the book, very often the writer will remove the ambiguity for you. And the way they do that is by using singular words with it. So if they say, Elohim is watching you to see if you honor him, notice the is is singular, and then there's a singular pronoun, him. And so you know it just has to be translated as God is watching you. And then conversely, if they say that Elohim are watching you to see if you honor them, then you know that this person is talking about the gods. You know, in an ancient context, most of these cultures had a whole pantheon of deities, and sometimes they would say things like that. Now this is an odd and strange feature of Biblical Hebrew. Most words are not like this. Usually there's a singular form and a plural form, and this is just an exception to that general rule but you know you shouldn't get mystical with it and say this is God's way of giving us a hint that God is both singular and plural or something like that I mean we actually have a word in English that's just like this pants so look at the first sentence and the second sentence I was wearing my new pants now I was only talking about one garment there I'm not layered up because it's really cold I just got one pair of pants on right but notice the word it's got that plural ending because that's just how the word pants works in English. Maybe because it has two legs, I don't know. If you make a plural statement, they were wearing their new pants, the word doesn't change. So there's an ambiguity there. How do you know if it's singular or plural? Look at the other words. First one has a singular pronoun, second one has a plural pronoun. First one has a singular verb, second one has a plural verb. Okay, so that's pretty easy to resolve And we'll talk about other words for God, I think, next week in the Old Testament. Before we get to the New Testament, I want to talk about technology of language. And this is a really interesting fact about your Bible, and it's something that you have to be aware of when you're reading it. What this is on the right here is a picture of an Old New Testament manuscript from the 300s. You can see, if you look closely, that it's all CAPS. And it's got a lot of accents, but it doesn't have any spaces between the words. It doesn't have any commas, semicolons, periods, question marks, exclamation marks. It doesn't have quotation marks. Well, that's interesting. So, on the other side, I have an English equivalent. Can you read that? (laughs) It's actually not too hard, especially if you read out loud, you can read it, you know. The first manuscripts of the Greek New Testament were written in all caps with no spaces, punctuation, or quotation marks. Amazingly, people could understand them pretty well anyway. They tended to read out loud back then rather than silently, and why did they do this? I don't know, it saves paper. That's part of it. You're not wasting all that paper on spaces and periods and so on. Okay, so how do you get the spaces and the upper and lowercase and the quotation marks in your Bible. You get them from the translator and or from the people that prepared the critical edition of the Greek. So you start with something like this and then you start on the uh, right-hand side. You start with that and then you start to interpret it and then after you interpret it, well, that's where all the capitalization and punctuation comes from. Does it matter to the interpretation No, it doesn't matter most of the time. Sometimes it matters. But we won't get into those cases today. Okay, but we're not like them. We don't write our things in all caps with no punctuation and without quotation marks. We have advanced technology, and thank God for it, because it removes ambiguity. If you say, I like cooking my family and my pets, Someone might be pretty scared by that. Not let you babysit their children anymore. (laughs) If you say, I like cooking, comma, my family, comma, and my pets. Okay. You're a normal person. So we have all these things. They're great. They're important. Some of the ambiguity is taken away by those. But you just have to be aware that when you're reading this book in front of you, that it's being interpreted because they're putting those things in so let's get a little more theological this is a word that I made up some people say you should use biblical terminology I think that's a good idea but it's also okay to have words that are not in the Bible like omnipotence or omniscience and here's a word that I made up as far as I know monotheosism. <laughs> now probably you know what monotheism is monotheism is the claim that there is only one God And this is a prominent teaching in New Testament and in Old Testament. Now, I find when I talk to people that a lot of people confuse monotheism with monotheosism. Theos is the Greek word for God. Right? Theology uses that as a root word. So monotheosism is the belief that there is only one who can properly be described or addressed using the word God. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the Bible, New and Old Testament, they agree with monotheism and they disagree with monotheosism. So they agree that there is only one God and they don't agree that you can only call God, God. Really? Well, that's interesting. So again, monotheism, just two quick examples of this, Isaiah chapter 44, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. There's just one who is God. Notice the singular pronoun and the first person singular verb, I am. Or Paul says in the letter to 1 Timothy, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one God. This isn't really a subject for debate. Again, people confuse that there's one God with there's one who can be called God. And that's not quite right. Famous incident, although this is probably smoothed over by your translator. Moses is kind of arguing with God. You know, he's chicken. He doesn't want to go on this big mission and so on. He needs a spokesman. God says to Moses, see, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh. That's a literal translation. Now, if you look in your translation of Exodus 7.1, probably it'll say something like, I have made you like a God To Pharaoh, or I've made you like God. So you're going to be like a God in Pharaoh's eyes. Sure, yeah, that's what it means. Okay, but the word is being applied to a man, not in the same sense it's applied to God. It means like a God here, but the point is there is, in this case, the word Elohim being applied to a man. An example from Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he seems like he's referring to Satan here as the God of this world. Now, he's not saying Satan is God or the one God or anything like that, but he's calling him a mighty being. Uh, he's godlike in, in that he has a kingdom and a certain amount of power and control over what happens in this realm temporarily. So he calls Satan the God of this world. But he's not God in the same sense that the one God is God. Now, my favorite example of this phenomenon of beings other than God being called God is by the Lord Jesus himself, according to John chapter 10. This is right after he says, the Father and I are one. And they're like, what? You can't say that? You can't say the Father and I are one? So it says, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these good works are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. Or it could be translated, making yourself a God. Either way, that would be blasphemous, right? If you're making yourself on the same level as the one God Almighty. Now, some readers have a bad habit, which is when they get to a part they like, they do this... Aha, so the Jews got it. They understood that he was claiming to be God. (laughs) Well, hold on, partner. It's not that simple, because in the Gospel of John, the Jews, by which it means his Jewish enemies that rejected him, people like the Pharisees and so on, they're constantly not getting it. He says, you have to be born again. They're like, what? I have to go back inside my mom? And he says, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven, and you have to eat me to have eternal life. And they're like, what? Cannibalism? Okay, so they're kind of like the rodeo clowns. They're playing a certain role in the book, like they're like comically not getting it. And so you don't want to just slam the book there and say, see, that's the, that's the author's point. Okay, so what you do is you just, again, context, very next verse, Jesus comes out with this big argument. If Jesus is our Lord, we need to treat him like a smart guy, and we need to listen closely to what he says. Because he's not just flapping his lips you know okay so he gives a really interesting argument here it's actually a really sophisticated takedown when you understand what's going on so Jesus answered to his Jewish opponents is it not written in your law I said you are gods yes it is written Psalm 82 which I'll show you in a second here's his argument if those to whom the word of God came were called gods and the scripture cannot be annulled can you say that the one whom the father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because i said i am god's son first of all notice that he corrected them he said you're making yourself god he said no i'm claiming to be god's son yeah, but his argument that it's not blasphemy it's it's an all the more so argument so he's saying in scripture these certain lower down people that are not as great as me the messiah they are called gods. And you don't think that's blasphemous, folks. Okay, but if these people who are not as great as me are called by this super-duper title gods, and I'm greater than them, it just can't be blasphemous to call me by this lesser title the Son of God. If calling them gods isn't blasphemy, and it can't be, according to your view, and I'm greater than them, then calling me by a lesser title just Can't possibly be blasphemy. Right. Devastating argument. They got no comeback to this. Now the passage he's referring to is this. This is Psalm 82 in a modern translation. And there's an interesting dispute about this passage, which I really won't go into, but I'll just tell you. I just said, according to Jesus' argument, the people that are being talked about here are some human beings those to whom the Word of God came, presumably some kind of human rulers or leaders, maybe religious leaders. And I think that's how it was probably interpreted in Jesus' time. It's an interesting question whether that's the right interpretation of this, ultimately, because it looks like it's supposed to be talking about the divine counsel, like God's punishing rebellious angels or something. These are called Elohim, deities or gods, or mighty beings or angels, God is supposed to have a council of sort of surrounding him, sort of advisors, kind of like a king or an emperor has a council in the Old Testament. So here he's addressing these, quote, gods, and he's, he's cursing them. He's saying, you're going to die like a mortal. And so anyway, there's dueling Jewish interpretations of this passage. Okay, but yeah, his argument still works, though. If these are people, yeah, God's own son, the unique Messiah, is greater than any ancient human Jewish leader, right? And even if he's talking about angels in the divine council, yeah, but the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, let all the angels of God worship him, the exalted Messiah. So he's destined to be their boss. He's greater than them. So either way, his argument still works. And like I said, it's a devastating comeback. So we're talking about God and different things the word God can mean. So let's ask this question which is on a lot of people's minds, is Jesus, that is God's unique son, called God in the New Testament. And to this, I'm going to give you the very convincing and firm answer, maybe. (laughs) I said I wasn't going to say anything controversial, okay? So every passage where some people think Jesus is referred to as God is problematic for different reasons, I'll explain. And for every one of those passages, some scholars don't think it calls Jesus God. But honestly, most New Testament scholars do think that Jesus is referred to as God at least once. But don't be too nervous about this because the word God is ambiguous. It can refer to beings other than God. Every Jewish person knew this because they read what we call the Old Testament, what they would just call the scriptures in their time. Okay, so I'm going to interact now with this very interesting book by an evangelical Trinitarian scholar named Murray Harris, and he wrote this book. It's kind of the definitive book on this very specific question. It's called Jesus as God, the New Testament use of theos, the Greek word for God in reference to Jesus. This was published in, I think, the early 90s, and it's a worthy book. He makes some very interesting and helpful comments, I think, about this whole issue. He says, On no reading of the data could the claim be allowed that the early Christians regularly called Jesus theos, that is, God, or a God, or hatheos, God. So the way they write God in biblical Greek is, remember there's no capitals versus lowercase. They don't have that distinction in the originals. So the way they write GOD, instead of having capital G-O-D, because again it's all caps, what they do is they put a THE in front of it. They say THE GOD. That's how they write GOD, generally speaking. Sometimes it's just THEOS, which could be translated A GOD or THE GOD, but very often it's THE GOD. That's how you say capital G, GOD, in New Testament Greek. Okay, honestly, Dr. Harris, he wants there to be as many times as possible that Jesus is called GOD. He's a Trinitarian. He thinks, quote, the deity of Christ is a very important thesis, and he wants there to be as many deity of Christ proof texts as he can possibly get. So he's trying to maximize the number, but he's also trying to be an honest scholar. And so what he does is he goes through, this is the whole book, right? This is like almost 300 pages. He goes through 16 possible passages at length in the New Testament where some people think Jesus is called God. And in the end, he concludes that three passages are certain And three are very probable and that one is probable. So he comes up with a grand total of exactly seven passages where, in his view, Jesus is called God in the New Testament. Now this is what's so interesting. Every single one of them is problematic either because of interpretation, because of a problem with the Greek text, or because of translation. And so let's just run through those seven real quick, and we'll look at some of them in our Bibles together and uh, examine the context. Okay, so the first one is this, and this is probably one of the most quoted verses in the whole Bible. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, so on the left, I've got Dr. Murray Harris's translation, but... This is disputable, and uh, we've talked about this before here, and this is a whole subject for an hour-long teaching, I think. The issue, though, comes down to this, I think. Why think that the Word here is supposed to be Jesus? Why shouldn't the Word here just be God's eternal plan or wisdom by which God made all things? Because a Jew in that time, reading the Jewish Bible, he knows things like Psalm 33.6. that says, God made the heavens and the earth by His Word. He knows things like Proverbs 8, where God's wisdom is like a helper that's alongside him. It's this lady. It's obviously personification. Okay, so this is a big discussion. There are also some Christians who think that John 1 isn't about the Genesis creation, but it's about the beginning, like, of the gospel era, which isn't silly because Mark and First John start off NRK in the beginning, and it clearly means, like, the beginning of Jesus' coming. So some some readers think in the beginning in John 1 refers to the beginning of Jesus' coming. I'm inclined to think it's supposed to be in the beginning like in Genesis 1. But okay, not such a clear passage. Probably most interpreters think that this is supposed to be the pre-human Jesus. Again, that's another big argument that we're not going to settle that one right now. We'll spend a little more time looking at this one. This one's at the end of John, chapter 20. So if you have your Bible... Let's open to John chapter 20. This is interesting because John you know, has an extra chapter. It seems like the book comes to a wonderful ending at the end of chapter 20, and then there's chapter 21, and it looks like there were more than one edition, and at some point they put that extra chapter on there. Could have been the original author. So again, this is Dr. Harris's translation, and really there's not any dispute about the translation here. This is the risen Jesus appearing. And remember, he appeared to the other disciples, and Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas said, well, I don't know if I can believe this, guys. This is pretty far-fetched. I would, though, believe if I could, you know, see him and touch him myself. And so then, on another occasion, Jesus, risen from the dead, appears to the disciples when Thomas is with them. And Jesus says, hey, you know, come here and touch me. He said you wouldn't believe until you touched me, so why don't you get it over with? That's basically what happened. And then Thomas is blown away. So chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says, Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Okay, so it's good that you're finally believing. Most people don't demand that much evidence, but I guess it was more difficult for you for some reason. So, yeah, I mean, on the face of it, it looks like Thomas is calling Jesus his God and also his Lord. Because on the surface, he's just talking to one person. But I'm not so sure. Again, that's possible. He could be calling Jesus his God because beings other than God can be called God, according to Jesus in this same book in chapter 10. Okay, so that's possible that, he's, that Thomas is calling him God. But I think overall it's probably more reasonable to read this like a double confession like Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So let's take a look at that really quick. Of course, this is a different writer in a different context, but, you know, it's still first century. It's still early Christianity. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is getting into this big argument about whether Christians can eat food that's been sacrificed to idols which I think probably most of the food in the marketplace was back then. So this was kind of a difficult issue on a practical level for them to deal with. And of course, one argument is, look, we don't believe in these other deities. We don't, we don't believe this pagan mythology. So so what if someone dedicated this to Artemis or whatever? It's just bread, right? Or it's just meat. It doesn't mean we're worshiping Artemis. So this is what Paul says. Look at verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists. In other words, that's not really a god. And that there is no god but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords. Now there's a part where it would be neat if Paul had quotation marks. Because I think he probably would have said, in fact there are many gods or many lords with those quotation marks. In other words, the pagans go around calling all kinds of beings gods and lords. Okay, but here he gets around to the Christian view. For us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, it looks like he's even exploiting a distinction that the pagans are making You know, people that believe in lots of deities, people that have some kind of traditional pantheon, maybe you don't know this, but most of those deities aren't very important. They usually focus on just a small handful of the million of them, or the 15 of them, etc. And they also sometimes call them by different titles. Or they might call them gods and lords, could be the second tier. Sometimes they call them demigods and other things in different languages. Okay, so he's saying, yeah, the pagans think there there are lots of gods, highest-level deity, and lots of lords, lower down, but still powerful and important. Yeah, but we think there's one God and one Lord. Of course, for us, the one Lord is the man, Jesus. This could very easily be that going on in this famous episode in John 20. Why would John think that that should be obvious to you? Well, we won't go through them uh, verse by verse, but... He's gone on at some length that God is in Jesus and Jesus is in God. He has Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because we're working together and we're doing the same thing. We're on the same team, basically. And so Thomas could be confessing that Jesus is the one Lord and in him, working through him, the source of his teaching, the source of his miracles, that's the one God. So, so if you look that on the surface, it looks like he's talking to one, but he could be confessing his faith in both. At least that's how I would argue it. But yeah, at the end of the day, he could be calling Jesus God because God can mean more than one thing. Another one, many, many articles chapters have been written about this. Uh, Romans 5, where some translated as Christ who is supreme overall as God, blessed forever. So it sounds like Paul is giving this doxology and he's calling Jesus God. This is something for scholars to argue about. It's very technical. It concerns fine points of Greek grammar. And I'm not even really qualified to judge. But uh, one of the most reliable literal translations that we have now, the New Revised Standard, says it should end, Messiah, who is overall, God blessed forever. Or maybe, Messiah, may he who is God overall be blessed forever. So they think, In this doxology, Paul is referring to two rather than to one being. But yeah, it it could be that he's being called God. Although, you know, if you look at the context, look at the context real quick, Romans 9. I mean, you shouldn't think that this is really the point Paul is making. Paul is about to get into this big, famous argument that the Calvinists love about God's choice, God's election, and God's, how does this affect God's chosen people? I mean, that's really what he's driving at. And then he just drops in this little sort of prayer, this little doxology in Romans 9.5. Right? But look at chapter 8 in Romans, like look at 8.31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us, who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, Will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ, Jesus, who died, yet who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Okay, so Jesus there refers to the Son of God, and God there refers to what? The Father. Father. Yeah, because the one who has a son. So that's, that's generally how it is with the New Testament. Okay, another quick one, Titus 2.13. Some would translate like Dr. Harris, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. But then some would translate like the NRSV footnote, while we wait for the blessed hope and manifestation of the glory of the great God and of our Savior Jesus Christ. So it's glory that belongs to God and to God's Son. Again, the grammar by itself doesn't really settle the question. Hebrews 1.8, many, probably most translations have this, uh, but to the Son, he says, he is God here, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And another translation would say, to the Son, he says, God is your throne forever and ever. This is something for scholars to dispute, but it's not really going to make you think that Jesus is God himself, because look at the next verse, Hebrews 1.9. It says, God, your God, uh, has exalted you. So, if Jesus is being called God here, that's fine. This God, this quote God, is someone that has a God over him, namely the one God. Because the word God is ambiguous. You could say it's used in a higher and a lower sense. If he's calling Jesus God here, it would have to be in a lower sense, because he goes right on to say that he has a God. So, not a lot hangs on these disputed passages. Uh, the next one, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Again, we're going through the ones that Dr. Harris says are certain or very probable or probable cases of Jesus being called God. So the verse says, The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And other translators say, Well, it's the righteousness of our God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's the righteousness that pertains to both of them. The grammar doesn't really settle it could be calling Jesus our God, that would be unusual in the New Testament, but it could happen. The last one is John 1.18, and this one actually just depends on textual variance. When you go back and try to figure out what the Greek actually says, people come up with different answers. And what a lot of them say is because it's so weird and so shocking that it should say the only begotten God or God the only Son. So they, they prefer it, not because it's in most of the Greek manuscripts, but they prefer it because it's weird. And they would like to think that people wanted to smooth over the weird passage rather than insert something weird. Okay, but this is just all armchair speculation, right? And some of the texts have it reading, it's the only son who is in the Father's heart who has revealed him. So yeah, he, he could be calling Jesus God here, but it just depends on what the correct reading of the Greek is. But if he is, yeah, there's different senses to that word, and uh, it shouldn't really cause any confusion to our theology. Now if you're going to tell me that a big central main point of the New Testament is that Jesus is God, and you're going to tell me those are the seven most likely passages where he's called God, well that's kind of surprising, it's actually kind of shocking. Usually main points in the New Testament, like that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, that Jesus is coming again, that there's only one God, usually main points, they just hit you over the head with them, right? It's not a secret code book. It's something that's supposed to be read by seventh graders. They usually just straight up tell you what their point is. It's kind of surprising if this is one of their main points and all you get is these difficult to interpret, difficult to translate passages. You'd expect it to just be all all over the place. Now, what Trinitarian scholars think is they say, well, it is a main theme of the Bible, but they don't usually say it. They hint at it constantly. Okay, and then we get real creative with how you hint at this, but that's another topic for another time. Okay, so is Jesus called God in the New Testament? Well, yes, between zero and seven times is what all the scholars would agree on. Most probably think it's a couple of times at least. And uh, it's an interesting fact that God nearly always refers to the Father. And you can pretty much in your New Testament just cross out the word God and write Father, and that will work 99.9% of the time. Or maybe it's 99.5%, i am not sure. I haven't done that much counting. Uh, so Murray Harris says, the second quotation here, when hathaios, the God, or God is used, we are to assume that the New Testament writers have Hapater, the Father, in mind, unless the context makes this sense of Hatheos impossible. Okay, so this God that has a God in Hebrews chapter 1, if that's the right translation, this God who has a God, that couldn't be the Father because the Father doesn't have a God over him. Okay, it must be somebody else. Well, right, yeah, it's the Son. The context clarifies it's the Son the whole time that we're talking about. So there's an interesting fact here which. I think anybody, whatever their theology is, should be able to explain. And this is the fact that God almost always means the Father. Right? It might apply to Jesus zero times, or maybe seven times, probably not more than that. But anyway, one, less than one percent of uses. Some theologies have a very easy explanation. They just think the Father is the one true God, like Jesus says in John chapter 17. It's more difficult on other theologies but I'm not going to get into that because I said I wouldn't be controversial today. So, we're just about at time. I think i just about beat you down with all my slides and stupid pictures. So let me just summarize what we've done today. In the Old Testament, there really is no ambiguity in the strange word Elohim, which always has that plural structure. It's like a word that always ends in S in English. Yeah, but there's no ambiguity when that's used with singular verbs and singular pronouns. It, It just means God, like the one God everywhere in the Hebrew Old Testament. In other contexts, you know, when pagans are talking, or when it's talking about Elohim in the sense of God's heavenly counsel, it can mean gods, which we could translate in different ways. Gods, deities. Uh, Second point, according to the Bible, monotheism is true. In fact, that's a very central teaching of Old Testament and New Testament. It's something they just pound the table on. Well, sometimes they pound the table on it, but most of the time they just assume it like it's just something everybody in the community knows, right? They don't have to say it all the time. Monotheosism, that you can only call one being God, is false according to them. And occasionally they use God words for other beings. That doesn't mean that you should confuse them with the one true God. In fact, I think that's why they sometimes say true God. Just to make sure you know we're talking about God in the most proper sense. God in the highest sense, not one of these other beings that can be referred to as God. God in the New Testament is always the Father unless there's some reason why it couldn't be the Father that we're talking about there. And it's interesting to reflect on why that's so. Arguably, Jesus is referred to God at least once in the New Testament. But if so, this God is said to have a God over him. God, the unique God, the one God, Yahweh. Again, we could do a whole teaching on this. One of the places where it says Jesus has a God over him is in John chapter 20, right above where we were looking. He says the Father is his God and our God. He's going to return to the Father. It's in Ephesians. It's in Revelation. So that is a very clear and explicit teaching that Jesus has a God. In part two next week, I discuss the ambiguity of the terms in the Bible translated as Lord. Turns out that in the Bible, there's an older, quote, Lord, and then there's a newer, quote, Lord.